just before we clicked record, Katie and I had about a 10 minute talk about pan au chocolat. Um, and it turns out we are both mutual lovers. Maybe that's why we've been friends all this time. Maybe it is. And maybe we need to start a massive project about pan au chocolats for the podcast. Mapping the best pan au chocolats in Europe. Yeah, well, I've just been complaining that I, I can't seem to find a single good one in my entire Paris neighbourhood, which I know is, you know, not a terrible problem to have. I'm lucky enough to live in Paris, for God's sake. But why why aren't there good ones in my neighbourhood, Dominic? I mean, it's seriously quite an interesting question, probably, about gentrification uh, and... <laughs> In Paris, maybe? I don't know. Is it? I will have to go and investigate that. But uh, yeah, hello. Welcome to quite an exciting episode. We've got a lot going on. It's been a pretty big week for Europe. We're recording this on Sunday and there are elections going on as we speak in Spain and Romania. Uh, And we've been marking the 30th anniversary of all the crazy stuff that happened in 1989 across some of this continent. A little bit later, you're going to be hearing a poem that we've commissioned to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I've personally had a very big week because I got to do an interview for this podcast in person, which made a very nice change from Skype. Uh, I guess happened to be passing through Paris. So we had a very nice onion soup and a chat. It did uh, mean I wasn't invited. No, you were very much not invited. But just as well, because it's actually kind of about the uh, a world that's quite familiar to you, Dominic. It's about a sexy opera singer. So I thought it was better to have me do it as a sort of non-expert on this world. That's a good idea. Otherwise, we would have been like geeking out about opera chat. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. So our guest is the historian Orlando Figes, and he has written extremely controversially a book which rips off the name of this podcast. It's called The Europeans, but we will forgive him for that because it's a really good book. It's about what an exciting time it was in the middle of the 19th century for culture here in Europe and how Europe started to feel like one place, really, with a, a nice big shared culture. So we had a really great chat. You will be hearing that later. But first, it's commemoration corner time. Commemoration Corner is back. Yes, this week is packed with commemorations, actually. Um, As Katie mentioned, we will be commemorating the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall later in the show with the world premiere of some spoken word from Christopher Huttmansberger. But actually today, I want to talk about another anniversary, um, an anniversary that's connected but slightly overshadowed in much of the European media by that falling Berlin Wall. You make it sound like it's falling as we speak. Oh, is it not? No, it's very much ever done with, Dominic. 30 years of history. Well, one week after the Berlin Wall fell, there was the beginning of the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, or the Gentle Revolution, as Slovaks refer to it. That's a really nice name. It is nice, isn't it? And it comes from the fact that it was a non-violent transition, a transition away from over 40 years of one-party rule in communist Czechoslovakia. The revolution is famous for not leading to a single death, but it did begin with some violence. On the 17th of November 1989, a peaceful student demonstration was cordoned off and then violently attacked by riot police. The act of violence quickly escalated over the next days from a few thousand protesting students in a few protesting theatres to hundreds of thousands of citizens taking to the streets across the country. And guess how long it took, Katie, for the revolution to be over? Um, I don't know. How long is your average revolution? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know what the average revolution is, but this one was... Uh, over within one month, one week, and five days. Okay, quite quick then. Yeah, and by then there was a new president, Václav Havel, who was an activist and playwright. 
He negotiated the removal of Soviet troops within weeks and organised free elections the following June. It should be said that a few years later, in 1993, Czechoslovakia would be amicably dissolved and split into the independent states of the Czech Republic and Slovakia. But it's thought of as like a pretty good example of how you should do a revolution. <laughs> um, so if anyone's thinking about it, then check out check out this piece of history. Thank you for fomenting unrest on this podcast, Dominic. Um, and thank you to Anna Yorok for reminding us not to overlook the Velvet Revolution. She is one of the nice members of our Patreon supporters group. Um, you can join her and the other lovely Patreons who lots of them have wonderful ideas for this show. And they also are very kind in giving us a little monthly donation to help keep us going. Thank you, Patreon people. Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. This week it's been a good week for undoing bad decisions that shouldn't have been made in the first place. So more of a good-ish week, I guess. You might remember that last year we made an episode about something called Golden Visas. And these are residency permits that a bunch of European governments have been giving out to really rich people who are prepared to pay lots of money for them, including our own country, Dominic, but also Bulgaria, Greece, Spain, France, Croatia. I'm not going to name all of them, Uh, but they most importantly for today include Cyprus. And the reason that this was in the news this week is that Cyprus announced that it was going to revoke golden visas that it had given to 26 rich investors because they are too dodgy. We don't know a huge amount about who these people were. If media reports are to be believed, then they include investors from Russia, Cambodia, China, Malaysia, Kenya and Iran. But what we do know is that in Cyprus, you have to invest at least 2 million euros to get one of these residency permits. You are basically buying your way into the country. Which is controversial for obvious reasons. It's yet another way in which the world is not fair. Like, why is it that some people who want to come to Europe in search of opportunities or safety can just buy their way in when other people literally risk their lives for exactly the same thing? Do you think these people are getting their money back as well? Sorry, that's not the point of this story. But um... The people who've got their um, passports revoked. Uh, yeah. Good question. I would want my money back so that I could then put it into a nice dodgy tax scheme or something. <laughs> Um, Anyway, the counter argument from governments to criticism about these golden visas has mostly been like, look, we really need money. And if rich foreigners from Asia or the Middle East or wherever want to invest here, isn't that a good thing? To which the answer is, I guess, maybe, depending on whether they're actually investing in something that genuinely creates jobs and makes people's lives better. Uh, Cyprus in particular started doing this because they were suffering really badly coming out of the financial crisis and by selling these residency permits they've raised about 6 billion euros which is really helpful but there has been some suggestion from anti-corruption campaigners that these golden visas have sometimes been given to insalubrious people who might be seeking residency in Europe because it helps them to launder money for example or move their money around to evade tax and stuff like that And the government in Cyprus appears to have admitted that they did indeed give residency to some dodgy people without asking enough questions because they are revoking 26 of these golden visas. One of them is suspected to be a Malaysian businessman called Joe Lowe, who is a fugitive. He's wanted in Malaysia over a massive corruption scandal called 1MDB. 
the whole thing is really mucky, but I'm ultimately going to give good week to the Cypriot government because at least they seem to have recognised that there is a problem here and they're trying to do something about it by stripping these people of their passports. Insalubrious, good word. Insalubrious, a word I often use to describe you. Hey. Um, all of the people that have had their passports revoked were let into the country before 2018 when the rules were quite a lot more lax. So these days, apparently, if you want to get a golden visa and come to Cyprus as an investor, you're not allowed to do that if, for example, you've been linked to an illegal organisation or placed under sanctions, which I can't believe were not the rules before. But here we are. We talked about this in a previous episode, didn't we? You know, we've been doing this for so long that I can't even remember when it was. Oh, yeah, here we go. Stick it to the grown-ups. It was February last year. We spoke to Laure Brio about the murky world of golden visas for sale in Europe. Who has had a bad week? Bad week this week goes to the pilot of Air Europa Flight 1094 that was supposed to depart from Amsterdam Schiphol Airport heading to Madrid on Wednesday evening around 7 o'clock. The flight didn't quite depart on time after authorities received an alert saying that the plane had been taken hostage. I received a BBC News alert about the suspected hostage taking and I did that thing that I know you are so not meant to do when a tragedy is unfolding and I went to Twitter to try and find out about the news in real time. Of course, Twitter was like swirling with inaccurate rumours that three men had boarded the plane with knives. Uh, This wasn't true. Where did that come from? Yeah, I have no idea where it originated, but it was like all over Twitter. (sighs) Um, I did manage to find someone on Twitter who was tweeting from inside the plane itself. And this is sometimes when Twitter is amazing. This person was rather casually tweeting, like taking photos of the armed police outside the plane and saying, oh, I really want to get home. Um, And I was like, this doesn't sound like a really serious hostage uh, taking situation. And that was because there weren't any hostage takers. Um, It transpires that the pilot had been showing an intern what the emergency codes were and whilst typing in the code for alerting the authorities about a hostage taking he somehow pressed enter Ah! and what ensued was not only a delayed flight but a huge special forces operation the evacuation of two piers of skipple airport the train station dozens and dozens of delayed flights at the airport and a meeting at the lower house of parliament that was put on hold I feel sorry for everyone inconvenienced and relieved it wasn't a real hijacking, but I also feel quite sorry for the pilot who made the mistake. It's just the kind of klutzy thing I would do. So from one klutz to another, I send you my best wishes. It was that rare occasion when I went to Twitter for reassurance that everything was okay and I actually got it. That said, it seems like it wasn't a pleasant occasion and the Spanish tweeter said that the special forces had entered the plane with shields and a chainsaw. (laughs) So that can't have been fun. What were they going to do with the chainsaw? I don't know. Apparently that's the way they get rid of hostages. Um, The plane eventually took off about four hours late and that's not ideal for the passengers, but at least it was a false alarm. The intern ain't going to forget that code, hey? So you may have seen on the shelves of your local bookstore a book by the name of The Europeans. And if your immediate reaction was to be furious that someone had stolen the name of this podcast, hold back that anger because it's actually a great book and... Weirdly, it's about people like you, Dominic, travelling opera singers. I should read it. 
You should. I've got a very nice hardbound signed copy, actually. So um, I'll hand it over to you next time I see you. This book is about like what it was like to do your job in the mid 19th century. But it does make it sound quite a lot more glamorous than your job. No offense. So like, you know how you sometimes record this podcast from like a cupboard in Switzerland because that's where you're singing. Mm -hmm. This is really quite different. The main character is this very famous opera singer of the time called Pauline Viadot. She was basically the Beyonce of her time, like a massive international star. And there's this one bit where some of her Russian admirers shoot a bear to try and impress her and she gets it turned into a rug so that after her performances she can like lie on it while her admirers like sit on the paws of this bear and tell her how great she is. It is wild. I think maybe I'm glad that I don't live in that opera world. Would you like a bear rug? No, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, it's not that nice of a present, is it? Kill a bear for someone. Anyway, uh, the book is about more than that. It's about how technological changes at the time meant that Europe was able to develop a shared culture where all of us were like reading the same books for the first time and listening to the same music. It's a very, it was a very, very exciting time. And as you know, we're very interested in the idea of like whether Europe feels like one place or lots of places. So I sat down for a chat in Paris with the author, the historian Orlando Figes, to hear more about it. We are in Europe in the sort of mid 19th century. Paint a picture for us, like what's going on at this time? Well, uh, for me, the big transformation in European culture is the railways. So I begin the book in 1843 because that's the year of the first international railway. It was open between Antwerp in Belgium, obviously, and Cologne, then Prussia. And it began um, a very rapid process in which books printed in new technologies like lithography on a mass basis, sheet music, which benefited from the same processes. The artists themselves could tour around Europe with much greater speed and ease than in the days of the horse and carriage. And this had a transformative impact on the arts. And I also bring it um, from 1843 because that's the year in which a certain famous opera singer, Pauline Viardot, made her trip to St. Petersburg in Russia and met the great Russian writer, although then he was a complete unknown, called Ivan Turgenev. And the love affair between these two is really the sort of armature of the Europeans. And the complicating factor here is that Pauline was married. And uh, her husband, Louis Viardot, was a great Renaissance man, if we can call that, um, for someone in the 19th century, who was a theatre manager, a great Hispanist translator, man of letters, journalist, politician, Republican, socialist. Sort of fancy um, jack-of-all-trades. Yeah, absolutely. None of these three people, Pauline, Louis, Ivan, are that well-known today. Why did you pick them as the kind of central characters of this history? I can't really remember because I've been working on this book for so long um, <laughs> that I can't quite recall how it came about. But I think it's because I'm a great Turgenev fan. So I got interested in all three of them as various practitioners. I mean, Turgenev in literature, Pauline in, in music uh, and Louis Viardot as a critic and one of these people who probably enabled the artist to function without being an artist themselves. 
because he was an impresario, he was a theatre director, he was a critic, he was a publisher, a journalist, and so on. That got me interested in the three as different representatives of the ways in which the arts were being transformed by all of these technological changes of the 19th century. And then I was also fascinated in them because they were all, in their different ways, sort of cultural ambassadors. Pauline was a great salon hostess. Her salon was a meeting place for people from all the arts. Statesmen, politicians, I mean, anyone who's anyone in the European cultural scene knew Pauline Viardo and had been at her musical salon. So I was interested in their uh, triangular relationship as a sort of a network, if you like, a network to bring people together and to accelerate the transnational, international exchange of ideas and cultural forms, which for me is the, the key to what's happening in the 19th century and the process by which uh, European culture is integrated. So I guess that's really what the book is about. It's about how Europe is culturally integrated through these new technologies and networks in the 19th century to form, if you like, a sense of Europeanness among Europeans, but also, I would argue, to create something like a canon or standard repertoire of works. So that if you go to Paris, London, Berlin, Vienna, Milan, you are going to hear the same pieces of music, see the same operas, read the same books in translation. It's a shared culture. It's a shared culture. And that comes about for me in the 19th century because of all of these transformations taking place. Mm, and I find that these three characters uh, represent that really well. I mean, they are, between them, they speak pretty much all of the languages. I think uh, Ivan's letters to Pauline, he sometimes swaps language. He, he starts talking in German because he knows that her husband won't understand him. <laughs> yeah, he reserves the more intimate bits of his letters for, for German, <laughs> hoping, I think, that Louis wouldn't. But I don't think Louis was the type. But yes, you're right. They are, they are really cosmopolitan. And um, your podcast and my book share, share the same title, The Europeans. Yeah, thanks um, for ripping us off. <laughs> but for me, the, the title came from Henry James, who was a great uh, fan, really, of Turgenev, and wrote a novel called The Europeans. And I quote a little passage from the book in the epigraph to My Europeans, in which one of them says, when he's asked, you're foreigners, I suppose. And he says, yes, but you know, we don't really know who we are. There are people like this. They can't say what their nationality is. And I think that that cosmopolitanism is, is an added element of what I found attractive in the Viados and Turgenev, that they were all three of them more or less happy to live anywhere in Europe, provided they could accept the sort of political principles of the government. They were great left-wing Democrats, really. And they lived all over Europe, moved all over Europe. Their home really was European civilization. And from a sort of gossipy point of view, I mean, everyone who's anyone passes through this book, you get Chopin turning up at one point, Ivan is like mates with Tolstoy or whatever. They're Abs all in there. They're, they're all in there. Uh, yeah, I didn't have to go looking for European culture. I mean, by using this armature of the three, 
it comes to the book. So yeah, I mean, uh, Pauline is a protege and great friend of Georges Sand and, and therefore Chopin, Delacroix. She knows absolutely everybody in the European music world. A whole series of composers, including uh, Berlioz and Gounod, you know, fall in love with her, write operas for her. Turgenev also knows everyone, obviously, not just in the French literary scene, but the Russian literary scene. So it wasn't hard to use this triangular relationship to branch into any sphere of European culture you can imagine. It must have been a really exciting time having this this culture just spread across borders and become a thing that everyone could could share in some way. Was it a culture that could only be enjoyed by the most privileged of Europeans? Well, the book does focus on what I suppose these days we would call the high art forms. But I would say that actually, if we take perhaps the most central of all the art forms in the 19th century, which is opera, it was a genuinely popular form. I mean, by 1861... Um, the time of the first census in Italy, there were 780 opera houses in the peninsula. That's an awful lot of opera houses. It was a genuinely popular art form. If uh, there was a new Verdi opera, then within weeks of its premiere, everybody knew the main arias, which were performed by, you know, bands in parks, organ grinders on street corners, sung by cafe musicians. So that's really what the book is showing, I hope, that the dissemination of the arts from what we think of as high art forms to a popular public is very fast. And so the division between high art forms and low art forms isn't quite the same in the 19th century as it is now. I don't think there was this great divide. When you are travelling Europe today, maybe by these railways that you you talk so much about in your books, do you still get the impression that you live in a place that is joined together by one shared culture or not so much? That's a great question. I mean, I've thought about this. I mean... um, I mean, I guess in some ways what Europe means to young people, I think in particular today, is this sense of connectedness. You know, the Airbnb economy, the cheap flight economy probably has reinforced that sense of connectedness in the last 20, 30 years, hasn't it? That you can have the weekend break in Prague and, you know, you don't just have to sort of go clubbing and make yourself sick on too much alcohol. You can take in the local art gallery or or find out something about the culture, the history of the place. And that sense of connectedness, I think, does still exist. But I do think it's under threat. I do think that as borders go up across Europe, as nationalism gains force, that this sense of Europe being a special place connected by a culture that spread across Europe in a way to create common values, I think that is probably under threat. But I'd like to think that Europe, the sense of Europeanness can be sustained by identification with what did in history, say, connect Vienna with Milan or Prague with Paris. I mean, those connections are absolutely crucial to understanding how Europe developed. And I think that the 19th century was the high point of that interconnectedness, which still does exist today, but I think we we need to hold on to it. 
Sounds like you think everyone should read your book and listen to our podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, in that order. <laughs> Thank you very much to Orlando for speaking to us. And thank you also to Sciences Po University, where I teach, for letting me record in the studio there. Um, Dominic, I want to ask you something. Go on. There's a detail in the book that I really love. Um, it turns out that opera singers back in the 19th century would hire people to clap for them. Is that a thing still? Do you do that? Shh, don't give away my secrets. <laughs> I knew it. That's the secret of your success. No, but that it's strangely similar to... The modern comparison I can think of for that is people who buy Instagram followers. Oh, yeah. So just how like Pauline is the sort of 19th century Beyonce. These people called the Klecker, I think they're called. That's the 19th century version of buying Instagram followers. Interesting. No, I've never done that. Um, but maybe that's where I've been going wrong. For the happy ending this week, we are heading back to the fall of the Iron Curtain. Um, one of our listeners drew my attention to this most incredible pan-European project, a project that has been trying to make the borders that made up the Iron Curtain into a nature reserve. Huge swathes of this enormous border were completely free of humans for decades. And because there were no humans in much of the border, nature was allowed to develop in extraordinary and unexpected ways. Hundreds of rare or threatened species thrived in this human-free environment. After the fall of the wall in Germany, conservationists moved incredibly quickly to preserve this area for nature, and the project has since expanded into a huge movement that is creating and preserving a European green belt, stretching along more than 12,500 kilometers and helping bears, wolves, even lynx, and tons of birds. It is totally fascinating, quite beautiful, and if you like the sound of it, I recommend you listen to an episode of Costing the Earth from the BBC called Iron Curtain Turns Green. Big thanks to Wesne on Instagram for bringing my attention to this. Why don't you come and find us on Instagram too? Maybe you don't even know what we look like. I actually think uh, that would be a perfectly reasonable decision to choose, not knowing what we look like. It's a good reason um, to stay away. Yeah, don't I try and entice people for that reason. Yeah, I actually sometimes get quite a shock when I discover that my podcast hosts have actual real moving faces. Mm. But if you are someone who likes faces, then type Europeans Podcast into Instagram. If you'd like to be in touch but don't want to see our faces, then give Twitter a try at Europeans Pod. And Facebook is also available, I guess, if you type in the Europeans. You've become such a Facebook hater. Yeah. This has snowballed over the course of about two weeks. Quite right, too, hey? If you want to abandon social media completely, you can just send us an email instead. One-on-one -on -one communication. Give it a try. Hello at europeanspodcast.com. We're nearly at the end of the show, but don't stop listening quite yet. As promised, we have a very special something for your ears to close out the show. Christopher Huttmansberger is a Vienna-based poet, writer, translator, rap artist and producer who was recently awarded with the award for the best voice in Austria. He has been looking at the topic of German reunification recently and agreed to write and record a special piece this week to reflect on the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Here is Christopher with The Wall. It's always tricky to speak in superlatives, but there are a few things that can be considered monumental. And for those things, barriers often play a part. Walls, 
borders, anything that inhibits movement. But what's important is not the wall, but breaking through that wall, tearing down that wall, in every sense. And it can take a really long time to get rid of that smell of gunpowder, of tears, of separation. It can take a really long time to quell the screams and the silence. The war has lost its original function and taken on a new one. A war is a declaration of failure, a symbol of exclusion, the flying flag of fear. You can go under a wall, go over it, but as long as the wall is there, it will make a cut because you cannot see the horizon. And that cut cannot be sewn up with rope or sledgehammers or wrecking balls. That cut runs deep, but it can be healed. When people opened their arms, it was healed a little. When guards let people through without questioning, it was healed a little. When bars gave out free drinks, it was healed a little. When a child growing up knows where a wall stood without ever having seen it, that cut reveals itself again. But it's such a tricky thing, because a wall is such an insidious thing, and it can take a really long time to get rid of that smell, of longing, of dread, of desperation. And it can take a really long time to quell the cries and the silence. But when we open our arms, we can tear down walls for good. When we let people through checkpoints without questioning, we can tear down barriers. When we give out free drinks, we can tear down what divides us, even if it's just a little bit. <laughs>